Hey humans, how's it going? Susan Ruth here. Thanks for listening to another episode of Hey Human Podcast. This is episode 325, and I had a conversation with Adriana Trijani. She's a New York Times bestselling author, television writer, documentarian, producer, and playwright. Her most recent novel, The Good Left Undone, was an excellent read, an instant bestseller. It's a sweeping story of many generations in the same family. It's funny, it's poignant, it's sad, it's lovely and warm and heartbreaking. It's all the things that you want in a novel. And I really enjoyed it. And I don't get paid to say that. It's really great. So if you're looking for a new book to read, I highly recommend that, The Good Left Undone. We talk about everything from writing to creativity to stretching beyond your comfort zones, familial bonds, everything in between. I really enjoyed the conversation. I feel that like she's a kindred spirit. I felt an instant connection to her and I really uh, I think she's fabulous. So I'm excited for you to hear this episode. If you'd like to check out other episodes of Hey Human that fall on the realm of what we talked about today, try episode 237, Richard Drescher, episode 249 with Alan Swibel, episode 218 with Gary Donzig, episode 166 with Holly Dexter, or episode 52 with Rosanna McGratton. And if you're looking for older episodes in general of Hey Human but can't find them on your apps because they only hold 300 at a time, you can go to blurby.com slash heyhuman with Susan Ruth. And by the way, that's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y. It's, I, I don't understand that. I, I say that in every episode, but the blurby, blueberry, I don't know how to pronounce it. Anyway, there you'll find all the episodes from the beginning, or you can also visit heyhumanpodcast.com. Click on episode links on either the podcast section of the website or on the humans section of the website. In other news, as I mentioned, check out heyhumanpodcast.com for links, learn more about my guests and the show, uh, susanruth.com to learn more about me, and please follow Susan Ruthism and Hey Human Podcast on social media. Also, check out my new relationship and sex show, Are We There Yet?, with sexologist and healthcare practitioner Mara Edelman. It's on YouTube under youtube.com slash show. Thanks for listening. Be well. Take care of each other. Be love. Thank you for listening. Stay safe out there. And uh, yeah, here we go. Adriana Trijani, welcome to Hey Human. Oh, I'm so happy to be here with you. I'm happy you're here. Absolutely. It's a weirdly small world. We know a lot of people in common. It's like a softball size now. Yeah. Incredible. Uh, I how great when we all know everybody. Yeah, it's fun. Off the top of the bat, uh, I want to tell you that I read *The Good Left Undone*, your most recent book, and it is fantastic. Thank you, thank you, thank you from the bottom of my heart. Thank you. Yeah, it's really. I love that it mixes so much history, this great romance, this many generations. I mean that it's such a fun journey. It makes me so happy. And I, I know that you shared it with friends, which is, I mean, that's almost like too much for me to even take in because, you know, I, I, I want, I want the books always to feel very personal, the novels. And so they are, they're always based on a real family situation. And so, um, 
so that I could stay with it. So I was missing my mother and my grandmother. Well, you know, it's an intergenerational story and um, kind of have every kind of woman in it. It really did, which I enjoyed that too. I was, you know, I'd be making breakfast and reading and like, you know, stirring my little oatmeal or whatever and turning the pages and standing in my kitchen crying. Oh my God. It was really beautiful. And so, yes, I sent it to several friends as a gift. And the, pe- the people that I didn't, I, I posted on my socials, have to read this book. It's so great. So I really, for me, it's exciting when I get to read something that I really, truly and behind because I'm I love books I love reading do you oh my god I I have a lot to recommend to you yeah I'm a big fan and you've written so many and I've started with the good left undone this that was my first because I didn't know so many treats I know treats ahead so many treats and then you you know writer director producer like you're this quadruple threat of well you know you know I think and and you will relate to this Susan that when you're creative or a creator you find yourself um you know I I thought that I moved to New York to make it on Broadway as a playwright and I I've never stopped being a dramatist you know there's a lot of and I always directed I trained and um, and you don't know if you're a film director until you're making a film. Mm-hmm. So there's a little bit of a catch in there. And it's, it's particularly hard for women, but now the gates are opening, which is really important because we started the film business. I always refer to June Mathis, who's one of the early director writers. She wrote Ben-Hur in 1926 in Rome was shot on location that had never happened before. Young Louis B. Mayer was her studio executive. So there's a, there's a history there. And I, I, I not only um, like to honor the history, I like to encourage then the next generation to get into this and own their stories. And, um, and because I'm an author and I work with so many writers and authors you know, it perplexes me that it takes so long to get our books made into films. I find it fascinating. It's like, why? In the golden age of Hollywood, every bestseller was made into a movie, practically, bar none. They were all made into movies. And now we have so many more platforms. This is an exciting time to get into it and be in it. I think mm-hmm. whether you're an actor, a writer, a director, um, a designer, a producer, this is the moment. I also think... Uh, it's an exciting time for people who are hyphenate creatives. Yeah. I, that understanding that you don't have to hang your hat just on this one thing that, that, and that it all speaks to everything else that you do. It's people get very, I think, uh, closed down thinking, Oh, I can only do this one thing. I have to pull, put all my heart and soul into it. And I, I kind of don't understand. Um, you get one life you, and, and quietly by yourself. Think about that. And I go, I'm doing, I'm, I'm one, am I spending the, my time doing what I love to do? And I, and it's always been pitched back to me. Oh, it's a luxury. I'm not saying this is easy, but I wouldn't have it any other way. It's very hard, but why would I be putting my energy, say, I don't know, into being um, a business person? If, if it didn't fulfill me, if it didn't spiritually 
make me feel whole and complete and that I'm growing. You know, I only have one goal with these books is, uh, uh, and anything that I do is to be better each time I do it. So that's all I'm going for. Yeah. Let's talk about where you started from. You grew up in Virginia. In Big Stone Gap, Virginia. Yeah. And there's a series of four novels that are treats that are waiting for you to read. Um, and it's the story of a, of a small town. I married a story I heard in Italy with the well, mountains of Italy, of northern Italy, and the mountains of Appalachia, and um, and made kind of a, um, and the Italians call it jambot, which is a, it's a stew, uh, changed names and places and things and made it a little more dreamlike. Um, and it's set in the 70s um, when I was a kid. And uh, Elizabeth Taylor choked on a chicken bone um, in my hometown. So that was the historical landscape. And I, and I just wrote it from my heart and then did sequels to it, um, which helped train me in this form. And then you begin to experiment with it and play with the form. What's interesting about publishing is how much the industry itself has changed. And I, I had a wonderful launch. And I worry about the authors now and their launches because it's really hard to get an audience because there's so many books published. And, I, and, and you never want to say it that way because every book is somebody's gem that they have cut and shaped and made polished and the facets are shimmering and you want to be able to read them all, but there, you, you, have to, you have to figure out a strategy about it now. That's why yeah. I, I think it's so important when you do come upon something that you love that you tell people word of mouth is still the ultimate it's the most important thing. The fact that you loved it and you, you gave it to friends and you told friends about it. That's what, what, what could I have to come and paint your house? I mean, <laughs> but I mean that with anything, if, if you love it, if you discover something and you love it, let people know, you know, because somebody created that thing out of nothing. That's right. There was nothing. Now there's something. Yeah. It's incredible. When you were little growing up in a small town, did you, have an understanding that there were stories afoot? Oh, yeah. I mean, I thought that everything I observed in my life was, in fact, something being dramatized, um, which helped me in a lot of ways. Um, I looked at life as though it was a story that was unfolding as opposed to something real. Uh, the imagination really is powerful. And I was such an avid reader and I still am that I think to be transported into another world, there's nothing more exciting to me than opening that book on page one. I just get so excited. And then if I find an author, I like, I'm like you, then I, I want to read everything. Mm -hmm. That's how I do it. Yeah. You know, uh, to be a super fan uh, and, and what better than, than to embrace an author? I think it's really interesting. Absolutely. When you first set your mind to writing a novel, did you feel like because you come from the Appalachian area that has this already this idea of what those people are like? Now, I've been there too. I've been to Kentucky and Virginia and all these places, and right. the people are bright and exciting and interesting, but... Mm-hmm. They, they get a bad reputation well, of being of all, not very bright. I, or whatever. I, 
I, you're saying something that's very dear to my heart. And I have been on a mission my whole career to change those perceptions. Um, we have some unfortunate things that happen sometimes that where, where uh, someone will speak for us. Look, it's to understand Southwest Virginia is to understand Scotland. And to understand Scotland is to know that it was the powerhouse, the most powerful country in the world, in the globe at a certain point in history. These are very determined, stubborn, clever people, for starters. They are also the birth of our, our entire music tradition of blues began there. American life, in a sense, the American rainforest, which is the Appalachians. I mean, I could just keep going, living from the minerals of the earth and living from the product of the earth, you know, the coal. I think we get, and listen, I'm an Italian American and I'm a Roman Catholic and there weren't a lot of those down there. Okay, so we were like the other. And I think to be other can inform something. I am still close friends with the kids when I walked in there at the age. I'm still friends with the same kids. So there's a loyalty, a bond, um, a connection that I don't see everywhere else in the world. And, and, you know, when we're sitting around, when my husband's sitting around and we're talking about Big Stone Gap and we tell stories, you know, our stories sound like something out of a book. They sound like something somebody made up, but they're real. Mm -hmm. So. You know, when you bring in all the traditions, then that, you know, in the 70s and the 80s and, you know, the Filipino doctors at St. Mary's Hospital, we becomes then now we've got diversity. Uh, the African-Americans, uh, the Native Americans, you know, and, and when I go home now, I see the mighty Mexican people. When I was growing up, the word immigrant was a word of honor in our home. We were immigrants both sides of my family, Italian immigrants. And I'm very, very proud. I've always been very proud of that. And I'm also aware of the struggle that ensued. Your people too. We, everybody's people are through this, right? And then to see, you know, that we even have an immigration issue ever since this because of the discrimination that occurred. I'm always surprised by that, but I, I guess we shouldn't be. But that's the waft and weave of, to me, what it means to be an Appalachian. I think it's the Appalachian experience that's the, the thing. It's a very fierce people as well. That well, were yeah. And I mean, listen, when I was growing up there, I know people don't like to talk about politics, but there wasn't a Republican to be had. My parents were Republicans, but my mother was a Democrat and then a Republican. And, and, and now you can't find a Democrat. So, and, and that a lot of that had to do with the unions and the, the and also I think that maybe uh, the people felt that they were failed in a certain way. They don't want the government to give them anything. They just want to know the government has their backs. To hear, to listen, to see, to understand, to connect to, to acknowledge the contribution of the Appalachian people. So you and I can do it, and we, uh, hopefully we got a band behind us. Yeah, and it's a it's a gorgeous region of the country, and up in the mountains, I got the sense when I I was just recently there uh, at the beginning of the year, 
And I got the sense that the people that I met, at least, as I said, fierce, but also a very much, we take care of our own. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. The sense of community was really impressive. Yeah. There is. You, you, you band together. You bond. You, um, you have an affinity for one another. Mm-hmm. There's a shared humor that's really fabulous. I love small towns. I always have. It's, did you grow I, up in one? I did not. No, I, but in I every time I go and stay someplace that is a small town, I you think have a longing. I do, I do, and maybe that's because it's not something I grew up in. But there, this the, there's just a feeling. I, it's 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 like its own ghost. It, it's it, such a wonderful thing to have grown up in a small town, and my. Mother's from a small town on the Iron Range of Minnesota, Chisholm, and my father's from a small town in Pennsylvania, an Italian-American enclave called Rosetto, and where his father was the mayor. So we are small town people all the way. And I mean, I live in Greenwich Village, but to me, this is a small town. Oh, and for sure. You know, the whole thing. New York is made up of a lot of small towns. All a little cluster of them. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. I always think that my end game is going to be, my parents have so many books and I told them, I said, all right, when you pass away, you have to leave me all the books and I'm going to open a little used bookstore in some small town somewhere. That's a great idea. That's, that's my end game. When you went to write The Good Left Undone, you, I read somewhere that you were hyper obsessed with Winston Churchill. Very. I cut 300 pages of the book. Let's I've talk about that. About him. I'm a little in love with him, to tell you the truth. I, um, I think he was a brilliant writer. He wrote a novel that's not so great, but um, he was a painter. I wanted to understand why he made the decision to imprison and ship out every man of Italian descent. And I mean male from, from like 13 to 80. This is really a hard one for me because Mussolini declared war, but like Italian-Americans, if you've been living here for several generations, you're American. But there was this slow bleed of bad propaganda, and I paid a lot of money because you know you read the book. There's, a, there's an article in there from, um, uh, from a newspaper to give you just an example of what they were saying about Italians in Italy, mm-hmm. in, in England. Mm-hmm. And this was so distressing to me because there's 11 years of buildup, and so when people talk about how they get their news, and listen, I argue with everybody about this, you have to make sure that it's a, it's a dispassionate source, that it's somebody who's telling you what actually happened as opposed to what their opinion is on the matter. I mean, I worked at WNBA Radio in Norton, Virginia, and I, I, they called me in constant to stop with your opinions. No one cares. Tell us what happened and, and get off. You're done with your story. And they taught me how to do it. And I, that's why I actually went into dramatizing because I couldn't do that. It was too painful to me. People were in pain and I, I couldn't write that stuff. I, it was just too hard. But now it's everybody's opinion and it's bloviation everywhere, regardless of what, what team you're with. And you have to be very discerning. And um, I learned that in Appalachia. I learned that you have to be fair and measured and look at the story. And I think that's part of the frustration of the folks there. At least that's what my friends tell me. Do you go back? Oh, yes. Now, since COVID, I haven't been back. Um, I have an in-school writing program that I founded with Nancy Bowmeyer Fisher, 
which grew from 40 kids. Now we're at 2,700 children, grade one through 12. Don't go anywhere. I'm just going to get the Nancy just sent me. You, you will love this and I will send you one. But it's the beautiful work. <laughs> it's, it's all about the origin project. These are all students, uh, grade one through 12 all across the state of Virginia, if they come into the program and what, here's what the program is. First week of school, we come in uh, after the teachers kind of go through a little training and we are an in-school year-round writing program based on loosely on the Bank Street model. So the students choose one uh, story of origin to write the whole year and then they're a published author. That's amazing. We bring in guest artists because I heard, this is how it started. When I was down making the Big Stone Gap movie in 2013, I, I was with, I had my friends, you know, I, my daughter at the time was very young and um, I was concerned because they cut out the school um, assembly every Friday. There wasn't funding for it or there wasn't interest in it. And so I said, well, that's crazy. That's like when all the juice happens it was the assembly. That's when you brought people in and it, you know, we could get up and just act it out for you, Susan, like, like the stuff that we did, you know, it was so great. Anyway, uh, so Nancy Bowmeyer Fisher had come down. She's a philanthropist. She, I met her when uh, I was a temp on Wall Street and she was a boss. She was so impressive. And she grew up in a small town. And uh, out West. And so we started talking and I said, you know, I really want to do something. Uh, this is the idea. And she then took it and, and started running with it and figured out how we could do it. And so we were down there a lot. I guess this is a long way to answer your question. That's what brings me back. But we, we did a lot of virtual stuff, which was great. And we'll continue to do virtual, but we're going to do in person again. Which is do, you, do you find it's easier to get kids to open up into story because they haven't lost that thing that kids have? Well, also when you get them, see, my feeling about reading is that you, it, it, my mother was a librarian. You have to get the child interested in what they're interested in through books. So if a kid comes in and he's a football player and he likes to read about football, you give him Carl Hyacinth. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. You find the book that matches them. If it's a young, um, I don't even want to do any gender stuff, but if it's, let's say it's a boy interested in fashion, you give him the books that he can read that he will, that will spark his imagination. It's really, it's it, the librarian is the thing she is, or he, they're important in the exchange. So we work and we're working this coming this fall with the, uh, Library of Virginia, because now we're across the state and we're like, okay, now we're, we want to really get our hands in the dirt with this origin stuff because it's, it's, it's a, a state full of immigrant kids. We have a lot of immigrant kids, which is very exciting. So the program, one art, you write one piece the whole year. You make it as perfect as you can. It can be a poem, an interview, a short story, a novella. We don't care. And the, at, on the first week of school, we give you a journal that says, and we say to the kids, and Nancy chooses a different color every year. This is, this is we're going into year 10, but this is book eight. And we, um, 
we encourage them to write their thoughts in the book. And then from that book, choose one area and then write, write your piece. I love it. It's a really, to get to know them, it's quite wonderful. And I, I, they're so talented. And it's one of the things that makes me a little crazy because when I went to work in Hollywood near where you are, you're in Santa Monica, uh, there was somebody from Appalachia there. I was like, where are the, where are my people? I mean, we had Earl Hamner, but I waited until, you know, we gave him an honorary award at the library of Virginia for me to make that connection. I'm not a shy person, but I, I just could never just go knock on the door and go, Oh, Mr. Hamner, your show changed my life. I couldn't do it. I had to wait till I had written a book to even reach out to him. This is what breaks my heart about uh, the issues with immigration and the idea that some people are illegal is that there are all these stories of humanity that will be lost forever. Yeah, because why? You hear that knocking sound? That's what the immigrant fears. They're coming for you. And then you get a few crackpots in office who use that as a terror mechanism. Oh, well, now here we go. Mm-hmm. Yes, but, you know, but when I, for the good left undone, when we're talking about the Britallians, the tallies was the slur. It is completely the chimes at midnight and the resonant chimes in the moment. Lazy. Uh, they pack into a house. They, uh, they, don't, they don't work hard. They take from the government. All the stuff that, all the tropes. Now, I'm not going to sit here and say there aren't bad people in every ethnicity. Of course there are. But not the, not the vast swath. No, no, no. Come on, people. I don't want to give any spoilers, but there were a couple moments where I thought, my God, this could be happening right now in America. That's, that's why we write novels. Yeah. Because it might have taken place in the past. But it's resonating in the present, which is why the novels told in the present and the past. Yeah, wanted the modern family that was successful to have to go through the story of what actually happened because people forget pain as soon as it's gone. They don't even remember the doctor's name. They forget it. It's out of your, it's out of your daily life. It's over. And I think the telling the stories is paramount so that we don't repeat the histories. I mean, I've been, I've been trying to get somebody on this show who was in the Japanese internment camps. Like I, I had a couple people that I reached out to, but they said, Oh, it's too painful. Yeah. We don't want to talk about it. And, talk about I, it. and I get that. And I respect that. But at the same time, I think, but if we don't talk about it, it, people will either forget or think that such atrocity would not have existed. Right. You know, well, I mean, if you acknowledge, if you live in it, of what your grandparents went through and your parents and your great-grandparents, if, if, if you're present in it, I don't think you'll turn your back on somebody who's going through it now. I just don't. But unfortunately, there's an attitude of, I got mine and that's it. That's, an, you know, but it, it, look, 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 it's on every level on the planet now. Of course, of course, I know. People who think it's not too hot out, Good walk outside. I think about this too with uh, the idea that it's so important to read books written by authors from all over the world as well. Sure, absolutely, that's important. 
Mm-hmm. Publishing industry does a good job of that. I think so. But it, the publishing industry is one arm. The people who are the consumers of the words, they need to think about, I think they need to think about that. I agree. Yeah. As long as they're reading, we're good. Yeah, of course. And How- then we're learning. We're learning. I'm learning. I learn every day when I pick up a book to read. Every day. And you make new friends. Me too. Yeah. I've reread several books over and over and over again. And when I pick them up, I think, oh, it's good to see you again. Yeah, they're old friends. I'm the same way. Every year I read Jane Eyre. Every oh, year. it kills every time. I it's mean, so it good. Points. It's really a good one. Looking through your body of work, was there any of the books that were more personally tricky to write, maybe more painful or, or complicated for you? Well, they're all personal. I mean, every novelist is different. There are, there are novelists talk to me and they'll go, I could not do that. But I come from a very big family, so I have a lot of characters to draw from. So that's where I get my characters. And I was obsessed with these people. My great aunts, for example, my great uncle. I'm obsessed with them. My grandmothers. You know, it's a way for me to be in their world and there to be in mine at the same time, even when they're gone. When you have so many generations within a story, do you pick, do you, st- do you, what is your starting spot in the past or in the present generally? Well, with this book, I, I, this is so crazy. You're going to think I'm nuts, but I thought it was a contemporary story, except that the character who's the matriarch of this family knows she's running out of time. She's 81. She doesn't feel too good. And I, I saw so what I wanted to do with it was um, was to, to root the story in the present. When she looks around her family and she goes, I've done a terrible job here. They don't know the story. And I think throughout her life, she thought they're not really interested. But there were some anchors here that were really great, that they lived in the same house together, that, they, that it was prosperity that hurt the family because prosperity brings division and division brings lack of communication and people, they, 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 they separate prosperity, um, wealth, not good for a family ever. And people will argue with me. What about this family? I said, if I start, if I get in their house and I start peeking around and poking around, you're going to find a misery unlike anything you've ever seen. And I would stand on that. Even when, for example, it's a famous family with a president. No good comes of it. Power, wealth, fake wealth, fake power, any of that stuff. And by that, I mean, because to me, to be powerful and present and um, kind and loving That's a hat trick. That's a hat trick in public life. And families that are used to wealth, I've never seen anybody with a trust fund that was normal. (laughs) And by normal, I mean an ability to trust great people because they're like all of us, but they have trust issues. Trust. Because what they trust is holding on to what they got. And life is about letting go, letting go, letting go, and change, which is what I write about. Is that how you live your life? Has that taught you that? 
What do you mean? Like, I think sometimes creatives, we, we create worlds we wish we could inhabit. Well, that's a good point. I would say I did it with my children's book, but I don't think I do it with these. I'm very at home in this world and very at home with the people in my life. So I don't feel a nagging emptiness that I need to fill ever. I never feel that way. But I like to call it like I see it. I like to, I like to, I like to say, hey, let's look at this. I feel like that's the Italian in you. <laughs> it probably is. Probably yeah. is closer to that than we all know. I like too how much uh, the vulnerability of love and the secret feelings of love play a part in in the book as well. Well, you know, I um, I'm into the mystery of love, the divinity of sex, the um, abiding peace of a long relationship. Nice thing, security. It's a good thing. But, you know, you never know. You got to hold on and you got to let go. So I'm very interested. You know, you know, when people say, well, why, why is there that element of, of the heightened romance in your books? I'm not a romance novelist, obviously, but I do like to write about it and in it. I like to be in it and write about it. Um, and I would say that that comes from... Um, the fact that I think it's one of the great gifts of living. So I, I, I really like to have it in my books because I think it's, it's an important part of life. As I mentioned before we started recording, I think this is a great book to send to people who maybe are terrified of love. <laughs> well, you know, I'm going to tell you, Susan, what I think about that. When you, when, when, when someone falls in love with you and you're terrified or you're in love with them and they're terrified. It's really just a protection about not wanting to get hurt and not wanting to show their hand. And I think, I think when a person sits down with themselves and by the way, the, the best thing that you can do if, if somebody's afraid to love you is to just love them and leave them alone and be kind and be yourself. Um, I'm saying this to anybody within the sound of my voice because, because you don't want it if it's forced. Absolutely. You want, you want them to see. And, and by the way, uh, I, I'm just saying the general you, but I say to you, you're beautiful and magnificent and smart and all of this. And, it, and, and, and you are all those things. Does he recognize it? Does, you know, and, and, and the same goes for the men. Does she recognize it in you, sir? And that's really the dance of it. But think about how we inculcate every person that's born. The, the music that they hear is always about love. You know, every once in a while, it's about a truck, but usually it's about love. It's a big driving force on this planet. You know, we know the exploitation of sex. We know that from advertising, the cheap thing. We know the mixed messages that are sent to our children about what to be and how to operate. Now you have another whole veil 
that is killing romance, which is porn, killing it. Nobody discovers it anymore. They pick this up and there it is in the sixth grade. And what are you going to do with that? It's not good. So, so, you know, for me, uh, I wouldn't let my daughter on social media. That was my solution to that for starters, but it doesn't, she lives in the world. She's, they all do it and got it there, you know? So, and, 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 and that's a real cheap thing with men, the image. That's not the relationship. And the, and sex for the sake of sex is like a go nowhere. It's an act of friction. It's like when eating you, paste when you could have a steak dinner. <laughs> exactly right. Exactly right. You're talking about the savoring. I'm talking about how you teach your son and your daughter to be in the world. Mm. What, what kind of person are you now? Everybody makes mistakes. I get that and all that. But as a novelist, I, 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 get, to, I, get, to, I get to create it. And I can, it, I can make it beautiful. When it is, should, in fact, should be. How flawed do you allow your characters to become? Well, they're, they're human. They're very flawed. One lady raised her hand in a book club and said, Matilda is so mean. And so I quoted Matilda, hey, when you meet an old lady and she's mean, she's got her reasons. My grandmother said that to me when she was old. Maybe we don't do everything perfectly. Maybe we don't handle everything just right. But what yeah. are we? This is what a novel is. <laughs> Who are we? Who are we in this moment, whether this thing takes place in 1910 or now? Who are we? How do we get here? Where are we going? What is happening here? Which is why the character takes you to the other side because she sees it. So a novel is more, I mean, it's the stories we share with one another. Interesting. When you're transforming a novel to a movie or watching it be done. Tough. Yeah, I bet. That's, that's got to be a lot of letting go. Yeah. Look, when I did Big Stone Gap, I had made, a docu I had made one documentary film and I had worked in episodic television. And I, the, the, the show that I show ran was a show called City Kids for Jim Henson. Okay. So that's when I was the boss. And I have directed, I had a comedy troupe. I've direct, 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 direct everything. In my imagination, I'm always putting the story together. Okay. This is a different art form from dramatizing. When I moved to New York, I met a director named George Keithley, who was quite famous. He had won Emmys. He, he directed One Life to Live, which was a, but he directed on Broadway. And he was the first person to direct Tennessee Williams. Uh, in Theater X in Miami, which some people within the sound of my voice will remember, I was not alive. I don't remember this. Big, but the first person that I, when I propped up a play to write a play when I was in high school was Tennessee Williams, and it was The Glass Menagerie. Okay, that's it. I just, so I'm, I'm a theater major at St. Mary's in Notre Dame. I come to New York. We had a joint theater department, and now we don't, so I'm St. Mary's. We, um, I come to, I moved to New York. I put it together a comedy troupe immediately because I knew as a writer, I had to get my material out there. 
cast these girls. And I did it for seven years. And while I was doing that, George Keithley read my plays, called me through my friend, my friend Becky Browder Newstat, Kim Todd, who's no longer here. George Keithley's also passed on. And they had this metropolitan repertory company and they brought me in and they wanted to do a soap, like a, a continuous theater piece, which I thought sounded hilarious. And George Keithley read my stuff. Keep in mind, he worked with Tennessee Williams. And he said to me, you've got talent. You need Ruth Getz. And I said, Ruth Getz, are you talking about the woman who wrote The Heiress? Ruth and Augusta he said, yes. See, I knew my stuff because I was educated in it. If you want to know something, go get an education. It's more than just about a job and pulling down X amount of money a year. Try to tell that to people now. And they, you know, they run screaming with their hair on fire. But I believe in it. She called me at the boarding house I was staying in, Ruth Getz, and she said, come and visit me for gardening lessons on Saturday. And I said, oh, Miss Getz, Miss Getz, I knew everything about her. And she was stunned. When I get there, I went there for seven or I think it was eight years all in before I went to Hollywood. And she was very much against me going to Hollywood. Even though she and Kitty Carlisle Hart were pitching television shows. So I mean, like I said, I have to make a living. And I don't want to work in offices for the rest of my life. I want to, I want to, I want to make money doing this. But she taught me how to do it, Susan. She taught me every Saturday. And when she died, I went to her funeral. And when I got to her funeral, people got up and talked about how she had them over, how she, Ruth, had them over to work on their plays. I thought I was the only one. Now, that's a life of largesse and generosity. Now, this is not, was not an easy woman. You know, <laughs> she comes into my consciousness when I'm writing these characters, too. She was, oh, my gosh. I mean, I, I could talk about her for a year. But she taught me how to, I knew how to write a play. What is your play? What is it? What are you saying? And every day when I sit down at this table, I go, what am I trying to say? What am I trying to say? Because of her. It's a very integral part of creativity, I think, to know that there's somebody out there that you can bring your work to and that you can't be precious. You have to allow them to you know, say. Exactly. You have to have somebody. And by the way, you can choose them. Now, when we met our mutual friend, Bill Persky, they sent me, he had a deal at Fox and he had done Kate. Now he's one of the most, I mean, he's a legend in show. He's a legend. Yeah. A legend, right. <laughs> and so when I met him, I could talk to him and say, Mr. Persky, which I did at the first meeting, is this any good? Have I got something here? Now, I have to know before I ask that question that I think it's good no matter what somebody says. But you do need the mentor. The mentor is key. So he still does it. I think he's got like a 12-year-old mentor. He does. He told that story on the show. It's fantastic. But I'm one of them. Like, I'm one of his honorary daughters. So, and I mean, it's a friendship. It's a, you know, sometimes he says, you're the parent. You know, we, we, <laughs> we laugh. But I love his family. And I love what he's created. And he is a man, 
a gifted man, a great writer, producer, and director who understands the female point of view. That's a rare thing. Mm-hmm. It's a rare thing. I'm friends with a few people that are that way. Matt Williams, who did Roseanne, Home Improvement, Cosby, and Different World. Michael Patrick King, Sex in the City, uh, and just like that. Uh, yeah. Beginning of the pandemic, I, I went back and I watched A Different World, start to finish. That was my first job. It was actually a lot of fun it's watching a, it. It's a great show. It and held up. It held up really well. would take some fragment of a piece of crepe paper and turn it into a, into a Broadway show. I, I mean, I was a gog at her. I still am. And how proud I was when I joined the Directors Guild a few years ago. And she was my signer. She was like my director person. After I worked with her as a writer. Wow. I love her. She's the real deal. Yeah. I love it when going back and watching those old shows and when they hold up. I did the same thing when I interviewed Bill. I went and watched the That Girl over again. And it's still fantastic. That Girl is, they're like plays. Yes. They're very densely dialogued, different from today because... There wasn't, I think there was a sprinkling laugh track. I don't even remember a laugh track. I just remember it being so interesting Mm -hmm. and, and dazzling. And she, oh my gosh, Marlo Thomas. Oh, I know. Right. Just, and she still is stupendous. Well, a badass as well. This is another woman who knows her own mind, knows what she wants. And correct. Yeah, and if somebody says no to her, she said, well, you're wrong. I'm one of the next person. <laughs> you know, she was to the manor born. I mean, her father was Danny Thomas. And right, so she right. didn't get any bigger in show business than him. I asked Bill about that a little bit. And he said that though she was the daughter of this superstar, that people didn't put her, in the nepotism case. box wasn't really checked with her. I think it's because she's just a woman. Hmm. I think they think we have nothing to do. And she was ended up to be a great author, producer. Direct. She did it all. Yep. Yeah. And married Phil Donahue. <laughs> and married like one of the great guys of all time, a mensch. Yeah. I know. So funny. What's on the agenda? What's coming? More, obviously more, more, more. What Do you have anything? Well, that you I'm hoping to dramatize this. We're talking oh. about turning this into a series, which I would love to do. Ooh, I love that. Episodic. I, I think it's a great idea. Yeah. Good. And I, and I have the 300 pages that I cut of Winston Churchill, which is a great arc. You know, I laughed. One, somebody that reviewed it said, and you know, listen, 99.999% everybody's kind. They're, everybody's loving. Uh, and the lady said, oh, you, she's doing the, the, uh, the, the, the popular dual timeline. And that's, I didn't know what I was doing. I wanted to write to her and go, I did three timelines. Now, I don't know if that was that. It was a triple, but I removed one. That's where you have this, this team around you, the editor, Maya Zeev, who's so brilliant, and my publisher, Christine Ball, and, you know, so many wonderful things happened with this book. It got chosen for Book of the Month Club, which for me opened up the floodgates of my audience. Mm. You know, I have a loyal audience. But you want to keep growing it. And that did it. Yeah. I'm a new loyal fan. (laughs) I'm so happy. I'm so happy. And I can't thank you enough because, you know, means the world to me. And I'm I'm so honored to be invited. 
Absolutely. Are you kidding? It's my honor. And for me, as a, as a woman who is a creative and is, has my hats in so many arenas to see other there. Yeah. And to buy see, more hats. Yeah. And to see women who buy have more hats, be, do everything you want to do. Yeah. Because, you know, we even learn this with children. You have skills in different areas. Celebrate that. Don't hide one. Bring it. Yeah. Bring it. Listen, I'm a terrible actor, but I can act. I'm bad, but I know when it's good. And the actor knows that. They know I love them and that I'm rooting for them and that their fragility is the gift. Mm. And we have to just, we have to, we have to uh, make sure that that gift is wrapped there, that it's, that they're protected, they're safe and they can create. Which is why I think the great actors are in my movies. I think they get that from me. You have to ask them. But I think it's what they get from me. And I always know when I show up for work that morning what I need. And never like, what's going on here? Because a, a, a female director doesn't have the luxury of that. She doesn't have the luxury of being ugly. She's got mm. to come in. And as you know, uh, um, with the agenda ready to roll here, there can yeah. be no butzing around. You have to get the job done. Yeah. But I, I mean, you've earned your stripes. I feel like is that does oh, it still you. is it still something that you're you're up against? Are people still slamming any doors for you? Interesting. Well, you know, when you're an ambitious person, which you are, so we can talk like girls here. I am not the artist where it's never enough. I'm a perfectionist, but I'm a realist. I have both things in me. So I don't beat myself up if I don't get it exactly right. I always go, I'll get it right on the next one. That's how I get through things. Mm. And I have been very, very blessed and very, very lucky that the people I have worked with have been supportive and astonishing. And when you meet one that isn't, it's very easy. You never work with them again, and you don't have to. You find your posse. And when you find them, you, you, you really, truly never let them go because they, they see your vision. They get it. You know, the actors that I've worked with, uh, with the exception of maybe one, I would drop, tuck, and roll for any of them. And even the one, I probably could figure it out. But 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 when they when the actor comes to me with their particular style, their particular way of working, it's up to me to make it all come together. Um, and when you look at my work, I hope you see a progression in it. Uh, I'm really excited about the next thing because the last thing I did, I went, oh, I learned so much. And so you know, you're always looking to grow. And make it make everything better. And it, that includes the books. And you'll see when you go back now, Susan, that you're going to go, oh, you did this in the first person for a long time. Yeah, I wrote in the first person. For me to write the omniscient voice, I, I thought it was going to die. <laughs> I can't do this. And I figured it out. That's what I love about the creative arts. And I, I'm speaking to the choir here because you do a lot of different things. That's your treasure. 
That's what you have to offer that no one else does is that you do these things, see? And then, and then if you do them really, really well, it leads to other things that you can do. But you don't give up. You never, 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 never. Oh, I have it here. It's my father's little sign. Never, 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 never give up. Winston Churchill. You just don't. You just, you'll find a different way. You'll do it. You'll do it because nobody has seen or been in your shoes like you have. It, 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 and that's what matters is the mutual experience of life. Whether we're applying it, I always think we talked about sex, love, romance, career, family, friendship. You know, this is the bouquet. You know, there's really nothing to complain about if you're living in a free society and uh, uh, you have a shot. Yeah, absolutely. But, but, but as far as misogyny and stuff, that, you know what? It's very interesting. I think that's dying a slow, painful death. I really do. And I think it's going to be hidden. Now, will it come back? Yes. And I'll warn my daughter of that. But um, you will find the Bill Perskys to work with. You will find the people that are like-minded. And you won't work for the creeps. You'll see it coming. And you're going, it's in here. Part of that is knowing one's worth. Know that you are worth that you are worth the thing that doesn't deserve to be treated like trash or garbage or less than right. and, and stand up for that. Absolutely. And when it comes to work, knowing your worth me is contingent upon, can I get the gig? Otherwise, what are we talking about? If we don't look, and I will talk to any director of film in the world about this. For, a very, for, for many, many years, they thought only if a man walked into a room, he could direct. There's great men directors and there's great female directors, but the female directors did not get the opportunities. And now we come to find out, which we knew all along, is that just a scintilla of the stories that need to be told are being told. So let me just say my sisters of color, bring it. They're bringing it. The talent was always there. I told you, one of my mentors was Debbie Allen. If you saw Debbie work, that you, you, let me tell you what, no moss grows under that one's feet. Next thing, next thing, next thing. And professional and, and, and just brilliantly, brilliantly talented. But was a dancer. And if you know the plight of the dancer, dancers are like, they're disregarded. I mean, the, their foot breaks, they get older, nobody wants them. Not Debbie Allen. Debbie Allen still dances. She put together a dancing school and she directs and she still acts and she still writes and she dances. I mean, she does it all. She doesn't let anybody tell her who she is. So that's what I guess I'm, I'm boiling it down to this. It's like I'm making candy. The, the, the candy is this, Susan. You... Don't let anybody tell you who you are and what you can do. You show them. And many times in my mind, I say, well, just kiss my Italian-American ass if you don't think I can do it. Just let's have some fun. Underestimate me. You know, like the pillow says, but just go ahead. Go ahead. Because the only person who could, could, could put, your, put you down is you. And you, you hit the nail on the head there. It's like 
You decide, you, you pick it. And then you don't stop till you get where you're going and what you want. Then you will lie in bed when you've directed that big feature and go, oh, if I could only redo that scene, you know, and I lie in bed and go, oh, if I would have had that. But that is the building blocks of greatness. Do it. Try it. Try. Oh, a little bit. Keep going. So when I was making Big Stone Gap, I was back home living with my mom, eating out of her kitchen, using her car. Because you know, budget, budget, budget. And I was getting a lot of crap. I won't say from who. Uh, too many characters, too many storylines. We're not going to be able to shoot it. Blah, 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 blah. And there was like a little bit of chatter. They're trying to shut you down. Had a little meeting. And I said, look, this is not for everybody. We're in my hometown. I grew up here. There's no Starbucks. There's no comfort. If you don't want to help, go home. Nobody left. It doesn't mean that they got the message, but that's okay. That's on them. Not on me. It's on them. I have this problem with the script. I know I have a problem. I got too much going on. I'm trying to figure it out. And I go down to my dad's books. And my dad and mom were um, in the 70s. In the 70s were, and the 60s and 70s were members of the Book of the Month Club that picked the good, okay? So I know that was my mother and father. That's why I got that. Because I, I wanted it so badly, it was sick, okay? I wanted it more than anything. And it happened. So I, there's nothing else I want. So I'm home there. And my mother, who's a librarian, is asleep. And my mother's at that point, you know, getting up there. And, and. I'm not going to wake her up. And I go down to my dad's books and I pick this up. Don't say yes till, until I finish talking. The biography of Dar a biography of Daryl F. Zanuck by Mel Gussow. Now, Daryl F. Zanuck was the producer of some of my favorite films. The Ghost and Mrs. Muir. How Green Was My Valley. And because I was adapting a novel, I didn't look at it like it was my novel. Okay. I, I, I have that ability to compartmentalize. It's like, now that I, it's like if somebody hired me to adapt a novel, right? But there was so much in this novel I wanted to film. And then, and I was panicking. Not about the work, but about, okay, if, if, what is the story here? And of course, if you saw the movie, you know, at the end of the day, it's about a woman who has to solve what she comes from to, to, to claim her true heart. Simple. But it wasn't simple in the beginning. In the beginning, it was small town life. It was all this stuff. So I, I just opened this book. And I thought, whatever it is, you know, I'm just going to I'm just going to see what Daryl F. Zanuck had to say about how you adapt a screenplay. And basically, there's a section in here where he talks about this movie, The Snake Pit, which was a hit novel in the 40s, and then it was made into a movie. And it was this whole thing. And Daryl F. Sanek said to the screenwriter, he reads his screenplay, he's like, you, you, there's too much here. Pick one storyline, which saved my life. 
Now I'll tell you one other secret. When I moved to New York, my off-Broadway debut, I wrote an off-Broadway show called Secrets of the Lava Lamp. I was hired by the actress, the star, Camille Saviola, who was in the movie, it, she was in the musical Nine on Broadway. I met her because Stuart Ross, who's a wonderful director, writer, had done staged readings of my one-act plays. She came to me and said, I'm going to hire you to write my show, which I did. Now, that was interesting, and she was great, but uh, when it, the play was reviewed, this off-Broadway play at the Manhattan Theater Club, it was a terrible review, and I was taken to task by Mel Gussell. And he basically said, oh, this, you know, now was he right? He was, I mean, listen, I was, I, I was in my early 20s. I didn't really know what I was doing. And then whatever got lost in the various things, Stuart will tell you his version. Camille's now in heaven, so you can't. But I, 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 Camille took, I took the fall. I was so young and I was working in an office and I remember going into the office and like the man in there in the office that read the New York Times said, whoo, you took a shellacking. But the same critic that put that kind of like gave me a beating saved me. He saved me almost 20 years later. He saved me. So you see, even when you're in it and it's, it, 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 you think you're dead, you're compromising, you're, you can't, you don't, there's something happening that's bigger, that's, that, that, is, that, is, that is saying, Susan, come this way, please. Susan, come this way. This is, this is the path. But you got to be open to it. And that's, as, if you're creative, you listen to that because you listen to the voices. You listen to the instincts. You pay attention to them. You live by them. You die by them. You direct, write, and produce and act by them. Mel Gassel. But you also didn't let that evisceration stop you in your tracks. Abs, really? This, this is what, you know, and, and there's all kinds of people that just think they know more or they're jealous or they hate you. And why are you working with me? Well, they wanted the scratch. They wanted the money. Well, there's a million ways to get money and you don't have to torture me to get it. Right? But even that was a learning experience. Even that opened my heart to things. And I thought, well, that fellow must be in pain. <laughs> yeah. it'd, be, it'd be so awful to me. What's his problem? He doesn't know me. So, so you, it's almost as if, it's almost as if you're constantly in a place where you, you have to bend your will. But, you have to be resolute about what you know, and you have to defend that. And you defend it in your actions, and you defend it in your, in your, in your directing. You defend it in the work. Nobody was going to tell me what that <laughs> novel was about. What did it, how are they going to tell me that? 
They don't know. They don't know. <laughs> I'm the only one who knew. I'm directing it. The director has to know. That's really the gig. The director has to know everything. And, you, and, and if, you, if you don't know, pretend for a minute and you'll figure it out. But you have to know. You have to know. My dad has a saying, never do anything for the first time. Always act as if you've done it. I love that saying. I'm going to put that on my wall. That's a good one one because it's true. Just get in there, try it, fail. Look, the greatest thing that ever happened in the movie business is digital. I made a documentary where I had 16 millimeter film, which was the giant pain in the ass. It was if you change it to the bag in the sun, the thing, oh, we got to get it to you. I'm every bit as picky, icky, picky as anybody else, but that taught me everything. Because when it went to digital, the reason women are directing is because it's become cheaper to make movies. Don't let anybody kid you. When the Kodak factory was open, you had five guys, six guys, maybe all in 50 guys, three women, two women, one woman. But with digital now, I can make mistakes. And my actors are free. My actors are not like, oh, ding, ding, ding. You know, if it wasn't a big budget movie, you couldn't do it three times. Couldn't do it eight times. Now, when you're low budget, here's the problem is the time, the day. The day costs a thing. And you have to make your days, however it's broken out, right? Mm. And you can't get behind. Well, get out of my way. I'm from, I'm from working class people that, that, that worked in the factory and then founded their own factory. So I know how that's done. I can work by the clock. Don't even start with me. And I wrote for television for a long time. And I, 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 those scripts have to be done two days. Give me 48 hours. I can turn it around. Whatever. But for people to come in all grandiose and tell me, <laughs> where are they now? Those who can't criticize. <laughs> well, now we don't even have good critics. I mean, I the took trolls, a you know, trolling. Oh, I, the- listen, let me. I, I someday when we have another hour, I'll tell you more stories. But I laughed at the reviews. I laugh at them, and then I look up who it is, and I go, "Oh, you want my job?" Now that's not true. Of say, I love Richard Brody at the New Yorker. He he did not review me. Uh uh, maybe someday he will. I would like to before he retires that he review something I do. There's people I think are really great critics. But now, you know, a monkey's uncle can go on the Internet and tell you who you are. Yeah, those are the critics I'm referring to, the troll kind, not the ones that are actually critical thinkers, but the ones that are just critical, period. And now because of digital, I can turn to somebody and go, you make a movie. You can do it right <laughs> here. Make one. Yeah. Tell yeah. I'm wide open. I'm wide open. Did you ever see Tangerine? Yes. It's fantastic. Whole thing was done on an iPhone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. Now that's this particular thing. I I like yes. the, you know, I like the cameras, yeah, the lighting. I mean, I love all of that. Yeah. Uh I probably wouldn't do it, but I think you can absolutely do insets and things and have some fun there. But mainly, I was never allowed to hold a camera as a kid. We had a family camera that was, my grandfather made movies, and that's what the Wafton Weave in my documentary, but they would never let me touch anything, which is sickening to me now. My, if my kid said, I, I want to try that, paint, take the paint, paint the freaking, I don't care. 
express it, get it out there. That's not to say it's like, you know, that school and Auntie Mame over here, but that I had a, I had a learning curve, but I, I've learned it and I'm still learning it. I mean, everybody's got something that they didn't, you know, and, and these are just to me tools. I yeah. don't think it's a thing. I think it's like, it's tools. The phones. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's great. Encouraging yeah, just- children to open their minds and be free is fantastic. My parents told a story about when my, my, my older brother, he's much older than I am. When uh, they found him drawing all over a wall. And my mother freaked out and said, oh, my God, he's drawn all over the wall. And my father's response was, oh, my gosh, he's left handed. <laughs> That's beautiful. Yeah. That's why I like two parents. You got that balance, that yin and yang. The dreamer and the grounded, for sure. That's right. Are your kids turning out to be pretty creative? I have one daughter. She's very creative, but she always was. And you can't hear her, but she's playing the piano. Oh, nice. And my, my father was, was a wonderful pianist, and she's got the gift. That's awesome. Adrian. thank you so much for being on the show. Well, I think I've made a new friend for life. Yes, I hope so. And I will be coming to New York because I have to visit cousins and things. So Good. So you call me, and we'll have dinner, and we'll have a ball. But awesome. I can't thank you enough. This has been more fun than I thought it would be, which is, you know, I thought it was going to be a lot of fun. But now it's like exceeded my expectations. I'm so glad. My funometer here. I love it. And please, everyone, read The Good Left Undone and in the entirety of canon. The, the whole canon. Yeah. And the movies and the documentary and the television shows. I mean, it's a yeah. life well lived that continues on and it's exciting. And you're an inspiration for somebody like me who also does a million different things and has heard over time, you do too much. You should just do one thing. No, don't pay. Please ignore that advice. I do. Worst advice I ever heard. Yeah, That's I the worst. Agree. I agree. You Thank have you. a lot more. You have a lot more strands of spaghetti to throw when you're multi talented. I agree, and it's all storytelling. Everything is connected. All of it. And by the way, the great ones, including my beloved Edna Ferber, who wrote Giant and and Simran and all these great novels, and so big, who won every award, Pulitzer, Oscar, everything. The end of her life, she was acting in a play she wrote with George Kaufman. Hmm. Come on. How, what kind of, that's a full circle life right there. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I really, this was fun. Yay. Thank you for listening, everybody. Bye. Thanks, everybody. Bye. Rate, review, follow, subscribe to Hey Human Podcast on iTunes, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Bye. Bye.